I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. And welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. Sorry, I was a little early on that one. That's all right. That works. <laughs> Whatevs. Whatevs. So this week's episode is a new state, right? We're going to New, new York. York. New York, New York. Not just the city, guys. The whole state. The whole state. All of it. But I don't know about you, but actually... No, my one story does take place in multiple locations in New York, but then my other story is squarely rooted in what we all mean when we say New York, New York City. Yeah, I think both of mine are New York City. Yeah. All right. Because the one's Staten Island, the other's Long Island, so... Well, technically, Long Island isn't part of the city, so... Technically. It's close enough, though. It might as well be, right? Yeah. Um, I have something to tell you. Oh, go ahead. That's really funny. So my mom listened to the podcast, and first of all, thank you, everyone who has listened. It's been wonderful, because... While recording this, we just launched last week. So, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and we really appreciate it. Tell your friends. Always tell your friends any way you can. So, my mom listened to the podcast, mm-hmm. and she says, Oh, your, uh, your co-host, she's got a very sexy voice. Ooh! <laughs> yeah, she, so, you know, Ashley might have some competition now, but she's like, she could be a phone sex operator. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I did work on the telephone for a while. Oh, so did I. My voice is not nearly as sexy as yours. No, I kept mine very professional and upbeat. <laughs> well, that's some good feedback. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And we'd also like to hear your feedback, too. So if you like what we're doing, tell us. If you hate what we're doing, tell us. If you want us to change something, tell us and we might do it. You never know. Or we might just tell you to fuck off. I mean, it's really a crapshoot at this point. Yeah. But I'm sure everybody has pretty good feedback. Yeah. So, New York, the Empire State. You yes. want to crack into it? Sure, why not? Oh, I just said crack into it. You did. So, New York, the Empire State. You want to get into it? That sounds even worse. <laughs> Let me just start. <laughs> so, Eden, where's your story for today? Uh, my story for today takes place in Staten Island, or more specifically, Silver Lake. I've been there. Staten Island or Silver Lake? Well, I lived in Staten Island for college, so oh, okay. I've been to the Silver Lake area. See, I didn't know anything about Silver Lake, but I've been to Staten Island. Oh, what part? I have no freaking clue. What'd you do there? Concert. We went to the St. George Theater for the oh, concert, which okay. is beautiful, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you ride the ferry? No. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I won't lie to you, <laughs> but it's fun. Maybe next time, if I'm <laughs> ever there again, because I had a really... Well, I had a good experience once I got to Staten Island. Mm-hmm. But I had a terrible experience getting there. Oh, yeah. It can be murder on that, um, on some of the bridges. Well, when we went to ask directions at, like, the toll booth, mm-hmm. no we were like, how, to get how do we get to Staten Island? And um, the person at the toll booth was just like, oh, well, New York's right there. No shit, New York is right there. Really? <laughs> and we ended up in Yonkers, which is yep. not close. I've done that. Um, <laughs> I've done that. The first time I went to go visit what was eventually going to become the college I went to... A friend and I left Pennsylvania at around, I don't know, 8 a.m. And we drove to New York. And I had a friend who was already a freshman at Wagner College, which is where I went. And we didn't quite know how to get there. And this was before, you know, Google Map on your phone. Yeah. I think we had, like, printed map, map quest directions. directions. yep. And the thing about getting to Staten Island, especially from New Jersey, is that there's no sign on the turnpike that says Staten Island. It's just you need to know it's, that you yeah. have to take the Gothels Bridge, which is exit 13A or B, I forget. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so we're driving and we get lost and we pull over for directions because we're in freaking Queens. I'm like, how do I get to Staten Island? The person just laughs at us. We drive back through the city <laughs> and then we get into Jersey and we're like, hi, we're trying to get to Staten Island. How do we get there? Same thing. We drove around for about six hours, spent about $40 in tolls going back and forth through the city. And then finally we figured out how to get to Staten Island. <laughs> it's definitely the weirdest of the five boroughs, I will say. <laughs> it's very pretty and I like it a lot, but yep. it's definitely a weird part of New York City. Yeah, it's the forgotten borough. Yeah. I think it's funny. People are always like, yeah, Long Island, that's part of New York City. And you're like, actually. <laughs> but your story takes place in the Silver Lake yes. area of Staten Island. So everyone knows Staten Island, one of New York City's five boroughs. Uh, Silver Lake is in that I had never heard of. Uh, Silver Lake is a very old community within Staten Island, originally called Fresh Pond up until the mid-1800s. I'll be taking you through time to Silver Lake at the end of the 1800s. Okay. Now, the pictures I've seen are beautiful. It's situated by the water and everything looks very peaceful. This is probably true most days back then, but... Certainly wasn't peaceful on a day in 1875 or maybe 1878 because, yet again, the internet, you betrayed me and have given me <laughs> conflicting information. 
But this is the Silver Lake murder. Dun, dun, dun. So on that particular day, three boys were tending their family's cattle or possibly walking through the woods, depending on which of my sources is true. For the sake of the podcast, let's just say they were taking the cattle for a walk through the woods. I don't I dig know. It. I, I mean, cattle love to walk, and nothing better than walking your steer through the woods. Exactly, unless you care about them getting ticks, but we'll overlook that. <laughs> so, one of the boys trips over something on the ground. They couldn't quite make out what the object in the ground was, so as kids do, they started digging in the dirt. Okay. They uncover a barrel wrapped in a rug. Obviously, the kids assume this is some sort of buried treasure and dive right in. I kind of understand that, though, because it is, like, the 1870s. Yeah. So you don't have a lot going on entertainment-wise. Like, True. I don't even think they have the hoop with the stick The hoop with the chase. stick, yeah. Yeah, I don't mean, cool. Let's find the treasure. They didn't have kick the can yet. <laughs> so, they uncovered a barrel wrapped in a rug, thought it was treasure. Wasn't so much treasure as it was a the body of a naked woman crammed into this barrel. Oh, damn. Yeah. So the boys run to New Brighton, I don't know where that is, but, and tell the constable that they found the body. Word gets out, uh, and the constable goes to unearth the rest of the barrel, and a crowd forms around him, of course. Of course. This is, pre you know, Pre-proper law enforcement procedures. Exactly. So, he removed the body along with a shift, a linen blanket, and an empty salt bag. These items were in the barrel with her to help secure the body in place. To gotcha. make sure it didn't move around. I mean, I don't know how much room's in that barrel that she's going to be moving around much. So, like, 19th century packing peanuts? I guess, yeah. That's, that's what you got. Possible title. <laughs> <laughs> so, the body was already in an accelerated state of decomposition, and all they could really make out of her was a long brown braid and two teeth, which really prevented them from identifying the body. Ooh, gruesome. Yeah. So, at this point, the police pointed out that the case is similarity to something that had occurred seven years prior. The death of a woman named Alice Bowlesby. Hmm. Alice had been pregnant and went to have an abortion, which failed and she died on the operating table. Her abortionist, and oh God, here's German again. Of course. Jacob, here we go. Rosenzweig. Rosenzweig, Rosenzweig. that's pretty good. You didn't sound French at all this time. Good. He was arrested for her murder. Because uh, he was, I guess, her, yeah, abortionist or possibly boyfriend slash abortionist. I'm not sure. You'd be surprised. That happened a lot, apparently, before legal abortion. Yeah. Well, he ended up putting her body in a trunk. So there's the big similarity. Oh. So similarities grew when an autopsy was performed. And it turned out that the unidentified victim had indeed been pregnant hmm. as an eight-month-old fetus was found inside of her. That's like, super pregnant. That's like really pregnant, like about to pop pregnant. So internal hemorrhaging was determined as the cause of death. Uh, that's another word that I have trouble spelling, hemorrhaging. <laughs> I know there's an H and a double letter, but I never remember if it's the M or the R that's doubled. Hemorrhage. <laughs> so I just kind of like hope for the best. <laughs> I feel that pain. Well, there was no real way to identify the body. People from all over started to think that the unidentified woman was their missing loved ones. I have no idea why there were so many missing people in Staten Island at this time, but there was a long list of these people coming to the morgue. Well, so here's the interesting thing. Staten Island, even to this day, is a more suburban borough of New York City. Yeah. And at that point in the 19th century, it was very, very rural. There was lots of farms still, um, lots of forests. It was actually a place where, I mean, even Brooklyn at this point had lovely seashore. It wasn't very built up. The only place that was very city-like was Manhattan, really. So... It, it makes sense if it's like a farming community, essentially, across the whole island. And it's pretty big. It's it's like 60 square miles, I think. Yeah. That people just, you know, disappear because there's woods and there's oceans and, well, not oceans, but there's a sea. And there's a sea, yeah. There's lots of things could happen, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Well, there was this guy named Louis Rige who thought the body might be that of his fiance who was pregnant with his child. He lived in New Jersey because of his job, but would visit her whenever he could. He found out that she was pregnant in August, and when he tried to visit her in September, she had already disappeared. Hmm. Uh, He broke into tears upon seeing the body, somehow knowing that it was her only from the two teeth and the brown braid of hair. I don't understand how, but okay. That was enough to convince him, and he went before the coroner's jury. I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently this is how they identify bodies. We like to be informative on this show. (laughs) 
So Ellen Murphy, that was his girlfriend, uh, her landlady was also there. Uh, her name is Mrs. Hazel. And she told the jury that around the time that Ellen went missing, that she had quit her job, packed everything up, and left the house saying that she was going to Ireland for three months. Wow. That seems super weird. Yeah. Well, the trial uh, decided that the evidence was inconclusive and the body was not identified. Okay. So that's it for them. Next, we have the O'Neill family, who thought it may have been a woman named Mary O'Neill. I couldn't find out how they were related because there weren't really many sources for that, probably because it's such an old case. But anyway, this is um, literally all I have on her, just that one sentence. They thought that this was someone named Mary O'Neill at one point. I'm guessing it didn't turn out to that be That didn't O'Neill? pan out either. Okay. So here's where things definitely start to get weird, and it's what drew my attention to this particular case. There was a man named George Hummel, uh, because this is the unofficial German podcast, so we have to have more German names on here. And they're here. like, like the figurines. Like the fi- exactly, <laughs> yep. So he was from Saugerties, New York. And if I pronounce that wrong, I'm sorry, New York. No, but I'm hopefully sure that's Saugerties. right. There's like a rest area there on the roadway. Yeah, I have probably been through it at least, but just didn't know it. Um, so he was from Saugerties, and his daughter Annie had gone missing last December. He was completely convinced that the body in the barrel was his 13-year-old daughter. 13? 13, yep. Hmm. So he took one look at the braid. Again, this braid is just amazing, apparently. Gorgeous. He just shouts, it's Annie. It has to be Annie. Annie had gone to work for a wealthy family in Socrates. The Schofields, Schoenfields, Schoenfelds, sorry, Eh, whatever, in their home. Things were great until one day Mrs. Schoenfeld had to go away for treatment for a chronic illness. And in her absence, Mr. Schoenfeld took an interest in 13-year-old Annie. Gross. I don't know how old he was, but definitely a lot older than she was. So he had been trying to kiss her. He had been seen trying to kiss her, trying to do quite a bit of other things with her. And anyway, Annie became pregnant in December. And to cover it up, her parents said that she was suffering from dropsy, which is like swelling due to excess water. Okay. And they sent her away to another part of New York for treatment, quote unquote. I just used air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like the old classic, like, you're going to, she she went to visit a relative. Exactly. But she's actually having a baby in secret. Like the episode of American Dad where Steve was pregnant with the Rogers alien baby and they took him to Mexico and it's like, no, this is the nice doctor that'll be taking care of your inside zit. Oh, I was actually thinking about the Sally Field Kevin Klein classic soap dish. Soap dish. Have you ever seen? Oh, treat yourself. So it's all about <laughs> Sally Field plays this uh, soap actress, and she has a daughter, Lori, played by Elizabeth Shue, but she's not okay. her daughter. She made up a story that she, her twin sister, Simone, was actually Lori's mother, but oh, in secret, God. she had left New York City, taken a hi- hiatus from her soap opera show to give birth to her daughter in secret. It's so good. So she was working on a too. soap opera, and then her life is a soap opera. Yeah. Okay. It's well, like Inception shit there. I feel like you'd like it. It's very meta and also, you know, Kathy Moriarty's amazing in it. Oh, well, she's always amazing. I love her voice. <laughs> okay. So she was never seen again after she went away for her treatment. Uh, this is where it goes really weird. And it's, I mean, you like really want to dive right in. Annie's body had already been found and buried. What? Yep. But that wasn't good enough. Because I guess this new body had the braid and the other one didn't. I don't know. Mm. But this town is like a freaking soap opera, I swear. (laughs) Now, they decide to do a test to see which body is the real Annie Hummel. So will the real Annie Hummel please stand up? (laughs) They exhume the body, which they had assumed was Annie. And because she she had broken her right arm years before, they figured that if one of the skeletons had a broken arm, they'd know who the real Annie was. Okay, that's fair. That's pretty logical. So they decide to chop off both arms. Whoa, that's not logical. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, this sentence is what I was like, what? I'm covering this. So they decide to chop off both arms. They strip the remaining flesh to look for evidence of a break. And in a shocking turn of events, neither body ever had a broken arm. What? Yep. Neither of them were Annie Hummel. Oh, shit. Where's Annie? I had no idea. Annie is not okay. Annie is not okay. Mm. Michael Jackson checked in on her, but, you know, she still wasn't okay. So, 
There are about a dozen more people coming forward in this town now, writing letters to the coroner asking to see the body because they thought that the body might belong to someone they knew this or were related to. This one-armed body. This yeah. now one-armed body because they just... Chopped off an arm. What the hell? I mean, I know it was before the time of x-rays, <sighs> but still. No, but it's very, very a very Staten Island approach. The That's, yeah. Okay. So, this town seems to have a huge botched abortion problem. <laughs> Even the New York Times wrote about it saying that the investigation, quote, at least succeeded in revealing the grinning skeletons in the closets of several households, end quote. Yeah. Damn, that's really catty for the gray lady. That's, I know. I'll go back to my previous statement here and say this has the makings of a really good soap opera. It does kind of have this, like, not quite fancy, but, like, Downton Abbey-esque vibe it's, to it. Yeah. At least Annie's story does. Well... It was beginning to look as if they'd never figure out who that body in the barrel was. But a clue came in in the form of a man named Gustav Kamer. He wasn't a local, but he did come to Silver Lake quite regularly to dig for watercress. Ew, who the hell likes watercress, but... I hear they make good sandwiches. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he said he saw a man digging a hole near the lake to bury his dog, and that dog was being kept in a barrel. When he told Kamer this... Kamer said that the man should bury the dog somewhere else on account of the smell. You know, no one wants that. Mm -hmm. So the man loaded the barrel into a wheelbarrow and decided to bury the barrel in the ravine that the boys had found it in. Obviously, this was something big since they had nothing else to go on. So the police then decided to use the barrel and everything in it to track this man down. The man in question was identified as Edward Reinhardt. Again with the German names. Yep. Reinhardt had lived in Stapleton, a neighborhood in Staten Island, selling candy and tobacco at a store until he married and moved uh, with his wife. The police took Kamer with them to find Reinhardt, and Kamer was able to identify him as the man that he had seen. Ooh. So the police arrested him right on the spot and took him with them to Staten Island. Reinhardt had been living with a woman by the name of Marianne Keegan, but her real name was Mary Ann Degnan. Degnan? All right. Yeah, don't know why it was Keegan or Degnan, but whatever. So during the inquest, it turns out that Annie, as she was called, because we need another Annie in here, had confessed to her landlady, another landlady, Mrs. Herborn, not to be confused with Herbig, Herbig <laughs> uh, that she was pregnant and didn't know what to do because Reinhardt had been treating her really horribly. So according to the landlady, Reinhardt had moved out in July, and she hadn't seen him since. Reinhardt had married his wife, Pauline Dittmar, while he was still with Degnan. But the two had never met. Okay. So this dude has been, you know, keep making time with yep. Keegan, Marianne Keegan, a.k.a. Marianne Degnan, a.k.a. Annie. Yep. Because that's not confusing at all. Not at all. But at the same time, he's been courting this Pauline lady. Yes. And he's like, you know what? I don't like you. I'm out. It's July. I want to have a good Fourth of July, and he moves out. Well, and yeah, then, he's actually married to Pauline while he while was he's, seeing her. While he was seeing the other one, oh, and they had never met. Oh, yeah. sneaky! Yeah. All right. Uh, Reinhardt also said that Annie still kept in contact with him, and that he could find her for them no problem. Okay. He gave the police several addresses and places where she could be contacted, but they failed to find her. Because, obviously, he was just a big old liar. Ugh, wild goose chaser. Yeah. So, on May 21st of 1879, a trial began for the murder of Marianne Degnan. Reinhardt was being represented by a man named William Howe of the law firm Hummel & Howe. I don't know if this Hummel was any relation to the aforementioned George <laughs> Hummel, or if we just got into confusing name territory yet again. Yeah. But there's another Hummel. You need to collect all of those figurines now. <laughs> So this was a huge law firm in the area at the time, and Howe actually defended Jacob Rosenzweig, uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, who put Alice Bolsby into the shipping trunk. Oh, yeah, the abortionist, perhaps, boyfriend. Yeah. I guess if you murder someone and hide their body in a storage container of any sort, Hummel and Howe is the law firm for you. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, guys. Did you kill a lady? Hummel yeah. and Howe. <laughs> Have you dumped her body in a, something meant to hold things? Please call us at Humble and Howe. Now, you might call into question how good this guy is at his job, since Rosenzweig was 
convicted of murder, you know, but how did manage to get Rosenzweig out of jail in under a year. So that's something wow. at least. That's crazy. I mean, you know, he deserved to be in jail for longer, but so in court, it came out that Reinhardt hadn't exactly been truthful. Shocker. Big shocker. In another soap opera-esque twist, it turns out that Reinhardt had indeed been married to Annie. What? Bigamy? Yes. Nice. To reinforce this fact, Annie was often referred to with Reinhardt's last name or as the first Mrs. Reinhardt. Just to really instill that into the jury. There was a ton of circumstantial evidence against him. Eyewitnesses who had seen Reinhardt digging the hole and with the barrel people who could testify to the horrible way that Reinhardt had treated Annie, etc. Mm-hmm. The defense decided to admit to Reinhardt burying Annie in the barrel, but to still maintain that he had nothing to do with her death. So kind of the idea of like, well, he just didn't know what to do, so he well, found her dead. and Like Tom Capano mm-hmm. did the same thing where he's just like, I did not kill, kill her. her. I just hit her body because I thought you'd blame it on me. <laughs> Dumbasses. So... They tried to say that Annie had gone for an abortion and was the victim of malpractice, but that Reinhardt wasn't present and had no involvement in it at all. But wasn't she like eight months pregnant? Yeah. That's really a, not quite. That's not, yeah. That's not how Well, I mean, works. I don't know what the law was back then. Yeah, but, but that's just not how it works. Yeah. He even tried to say that Annie had come home afterwards and complained of some lingering pain. He testified that she had taken medication the doctor had given her and had died between 11 and 12 that night. However, the jury did not buy his crap, and he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. I'm kind of glad, because he tried to, like, mansplain how babies and lady parts work, and he clearly (laughs) did not understand. After the verdict was delivered, Howe filed for a new trial, stating that the first one had been unfair and that Reinhardt Reinhardt actually was tried again in April and found guilty a second time. Mm-hmm. So his execution had been scheduled for April 2nd of 1890, but Howe was able to get a stay of execution until January of 1891. Now, I found that he had tried to escape twice from prison, but there wasn't any information on what exactly happened in those attempts. All I know is that they were unsuccessful. Here's something weird. He actually had two pet cats that lived with him in his cell in prison on Death Freaking Row. Is that an option? I back then, I guess. I wonder if the cats could fit through the bars and just like wander around. I they think just, like, they probably did, but like he kind of like just hung out with them, like they were his little I wonder jail what buddies. Were. Maybe they were on death row too. <gasps> Didn't catch enough mice. <laughs> Caught too many mice. So who knows? Something. So he would also pass the time painting on his cell wall, making model ships, and quote conversing with sentimental ladies who would visit him. End quote. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean? Sentimental about what exactly? Did they say, oh dear, remember that time you killed your wife and unborn child before putting them in a barrel and burying them in a shallow grave? Oh, what laughs we had. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Sentimental? I'm sure they were just murder groupies. Probably murder groupies. So, for his execution, they actually transported the gallows to Richmond County Jail, where he was being held, from Tombs Prison. Yeah, the of- Tombs. Yeah. It was like a the pretty old, like, kind of, like, downtown Manhattan prison. Oh, okay. Like, sometimes you hear it referenced if you watch, like, movies and stuff like that. And it was, oh, okay. I don't think it's still around anymore. Probably not. But they didn't even have their own because Staten Island's first, ex- this was Staten Island's first execution. Wow. In over 100 years. Wow. So they did not have anything prepared. They really rolled out everything for this guy. Well, which I mean, he kind of deserved it. He deserves it. So more than 300 people showed up to watch Reinhardt be executed, and they arrived in style, too. Most came by horse-drawn sleigh. Oh, because it was wintertime. That's right, it's January. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, to the gallows we go, because someone's got to pay. (laughs) (laughs) I had to, couldn't help myself. I don't know what's normal for this sort of thing, since we don't hang people anymore, but it took him six minutes of swinging before he died. Ooh, that is not a good executioner. Yeah, I know it normally, like, snaps the neck. Well, apparently there's a whole science behind it, and, like, uh, executioners who were hangmen specifically were kind of well-trained for that very reason. It's like you had to figure out how long to make the rope in relation to the gallows, in relation to how heavy the person was yeah. and how tall they were, because ideally, that's right. There were, yeah, yeah. Ideally, you wanted their neck to break, but not 
so much that you accidentally yep. decapitated them. Otherwise, if it wasn't quite right, they would sit there and like do like the dead man's dance. Yeah, and that's also. I like, forgot they used to do like measurements and stuff yeah. before. Like when you look at the pictures of when they hung the conspirators uh, who killed Abe Lincoln, you'll notice all of their legs are bound. You can see it really well in that because yeah. Mary Sarap's body has like the big skirt on. So, like yes. I forget her name. I don't know who you're talking, but I know what you're talking yeah. about. You know the image. Yes, exactly. So finally, Edward Reinhardt was buried in Silvermount Cemetery in Sunnyside, Staten Island, New York. I don't know where Sunnyside is. So for the sake of a happy ending, uh, in November of 1878, Ellen Murphy, the fiance of Louis Reich, um from earlier, actually... Oh, yeah, the guy who was super upset that yeah. she was gone. Yes. Yeah. She returned home with her baby. She did go to Ireland. Well, she had been staying in another part of New York City until things in Staten Island got a little bit better. I guess she had heard the news somehow. I don't know why she wouldn't send a letter or something to Lewis, though, so he didn't worry about her the whole time. Mm. But as soon as she came home, Lewis proposed to her, and she accepted, and the two were married shortly thereafter. Oh, that's a happy ending. So, yeah, that's really cool. That doesn't usually happen for our stories. Yeah, I know, right? It's all just death and sadness. Yeah. Every goth kid's dream. Cheers to that. <laughs> so for my notes this week, I used a few different sources, although they were fewer than I usually do. Uh, but I found a lot of them, a lot of things on a site called murderbygaslight.com. And I also used findagrave.com. And I got the story idea from listverse.com in a list called 10 Creepy Murders in Old New York. I tried to use the New York Times as a source, but first they made me create an account just to see the article. <laughs> which turned out to be a sentence. And then it told me to check out their time machine section to read more. But then it said that I needed to pay so much per month to be able to see that section. So it was a huge waste of time, and I'm still kind of mad about it and probably will no longer do their crossword puzzles. Plus now they got your email address and they're going to harass you. Oh, I know. Yep, they do, because they've already sent me several messages. So I'm just going to have to tell them to stop if I can. But there was another story on this same list from Listverse that, uh, you know, I found and really wanted to cover, but I chose this one instead. That one was called The Witch of Staten Island. But do you know this one? I I don't, except for the fact that in my head I'm like, I'm sure there was, like, a witch in Staten Island. Because there's, like, this, like, Richmond Village is called. It's, like, this old colonial, like, yeah. 19, or sorry, 1690s colonial thing. I'm pretty I'm sure like, Richmond is, like, where it happened. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Um. Yeah, well, it's not so much a witch as it is just a woman, but, you know. No, you know. That's that's what women were back then. Apparently, ladies being ladies. <laughs> ladies with an opinion. <laughs> How dare they? So it seemed really interesting because it was about like this house that had caught on fire. But when they went in to see if anyone died, they found a dead mother and children beside her. Uh, but they were murdered before the fire was set. Oh, dang. So the main reason that I almost went with this one instead was because uh, the husband's sister was the one accused of the murders. And uh, they didn't end up convicting her because she was just like, look, I have no motive. You mm-hmm. know, why are you even doing this? Because um, you're not married. But in a complete display of horribleness, the husband was quoted as saying, I can get another wife. I can get another child. But I can't get another sister. How fucked up is that? What are we in the fucking flowers in the attic? What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I was like, I need to cover this one. But then I changed my mind. Did he do it? Did he do it? I bet he did it. He probably did. It's still unsolved. Oh, he totally did. But I have a feeling that he did it probably to be with his his darling Wonderheart, his sister. His darling Wonderheart sisters. <laughs> so that that was my Silver Lake murder story. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoy the weird things that pop up, uh, especially in old New York. I feel like yeah. you hear so much about like New York in the 70s and all that craziness. And like it was a very like interesting time. But I also feel like there's this whole really rich history of like pre-modern New York. Yeah. Where it's like, because what we know as New York City is not how it, how it was. Well, I think you know, New York years ago. back then was so cool because like around the turn of the century, like, everyone was coming from all over in droves mm-hmm. through Ellis Island. Uh, it just seemed like a really cool place. Other than the whole, you know, bigoted crap that happened. Well, and all the horse shit everywhere. Yeah, that too. But I mean, like, there's a lot of, like, no Irish need apply signs, like, when people are, like, looking for jobs and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Like, everybody Before hated, the Irish were white. Everybody <laughs> hated somebody. Yep. Well, they also hated the Irish because they were a lot of the policemen then, too. Well, that's because the only people who would actually take the jobs as cops because you're essentially like street thugs. Yeah. 
were the Irish because you, you could actually get paid, but everybody who was like an officer or whatever was usually a Protestant. Yeah. Or, a, you know, wasp, whatever. Yeah. Anglo-American. Well, they must have been from the, re- well, what is now the Republic of Ireland rather than mm. Northern Ireland. Or they converted because or, yeah. Episcopals and such. As I know, my family was originally from Northern Ireland, from Donegal. Mm. Oh, some of my answers from Donegal, too. Oh, nice. Then we got exiled. Oh, and went over to Spain and Portugal. And then we came back and we we're like, fuck you, King George. Um, I'm just going to go to, you know, the better Ireland, in my opinion. <laughs> we're from um, Dublin and Donegal and, like, Ulster. We ended up um, being in Dublin then when we came back to Ireland. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. I found all that out through the internet. Who knew? Mm. Ancestry and crap. The magic of the internet. Yes. The world at your fingertips. Oh, God, that answers to DNA um, mm-hmm. ad on Facebook was like, oh, it's amazing what a little spit can do or like something like that. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> you are not wrong, phrasing, ancestry. Phrasing. <laughs> Did you know, speaking of which, you can get a DNA test for your pet. Like I always knew yeah. you could do it for your dogs and stuff. And like I have uh, relatives who did it for their dog and it was super interesting to see what their dog came back as. That's so cool. But now apparently you can do it for your cats. That's really cool too. And I was like, oh my God, I can find out what kind of cat Ichabod is because he's he's a ginger and I guess like the Vikings were very fond of gingers. And well, they I mean, it's hard to them. find out what kind of ginger is because they have no soul, I guess. But um, but they have spit. <laughs> they do have they spit. They do have spit. Um, he's not a Viking at heart. He's a big wuss. But oh. I love him and he's a derp. So I'm like, I bet I could test his DNA. And then I went to the site. I got super excited. And then I saw how much it cost. How much did it cost? It cost $100. That's as much as a human. Yeah. Exactly. I'm like, they're smaller. Shouldn't it be like half price? Yeah, Like, right? they're a tenth of my size. They're really tiny. Shouldn't yeah. it be a tenth of the price? Like, I would agree. Like, $10 I'd pay. I would agree. But then again, I'm a cheap-ass bastard. even 25 Yeah. But no. If you really loved your cat, you would have spent $100. <sighs> now I have to tell poor Ichabod that he's unloved. Listen, he is so spoiled. <laughs> he gets pate. He gets kibble. He gets pets. All right. He has a clean litter box and a roof over his head and lots of toys. That's all he can ask for. He can't mouse because he's not that good. So I feel like this is the best life he could live. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. Time to make a pit stop? Yes. All right, gang. We'll be back in a little bit with my haunting story for New York. I'm excited. We'll see you then. And we are back. Yep. I'm ready. I got my snacks. You got your snacks, you got your wine, but do you have your story? I do. All right, let's hear it. All right, for my paranormal story in New York, our stop today is going to be number 14 West 10th Street in in the Greenwich Village section of New York City. I used to live there. No, I totally didn't. I'm lying. (laughs) I'm like, really? (laughs) So this particular building is a Greek Revival brownstone built a few blocks from Washington Square Park, which is like that big iconic park with the big arch in it. Yeah. And it's built in that classic, you know, New York brownstone style. Uh, It's old. It was built in the 1850s. And over the years, it's had some famous and infamous residents. It's also seen the death of over 22 people, both from natural causes and violence. This has actually led the house to develop an eerie moniker. It's locally known as the House of Death. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to love my... Uh... Oh, wait. No, never mind. I already did that one. That was last week's um, last week's spooky story. Oh, yeah. Where we had 13 deaths in the house. Yep, yep. So, for majority of its history, the residents of the House of Death have reported strange incidents like tapping and knocking... Uh, unaccounted for footsteps, even some apparitions. But before I get too far into the ghostly happenings in the house, I want to tell you about some of the people who've actually lived there over the years. Okay. Uh, The most famous resident of number 14 West 10th Street was Mr. Mark Twain. Really? Yes. I was like, ooh, Mark Twain. Samuel Clemens. Tell me more. So Twain lived in the house of death for a period of time later in his life. It was actually a really dark time for Twain. He had made some pretty bad investment decisions. He had filed for bankruptcy. He lost this stately house in Hartford, Connecticut, where he had raised his family. It's now the Mark Twain house, but this is right after he lost it due to his bankruptcy. Just like Tony Braxton. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, she got to keep her house. Oh. Yeah. Well, poor Mark Twain didn't. No. Oh. So 
he loses his house. Plus, he starts to hit just this terrible run of luck. He's suffering from depression because both his beloved daughter and his wife had died. He's also plagued by anxiety about the rise of imperialism in America. And he wrote and spoke out against the U.S.'s imperialistic activities a lot during this period. So he railed against things like the Spanish-American War and the U.S.'s annexing of the Philippines. He was very uncomfortable with the direction that America was heading in. Okay. So I can appreciate that. Yeah, he was a pretty pretty forward-thinking guy for, you know, a late Victorian yeah. white man. Very but. true. So I came across a few stories about Twain's time in the House of Death. Uh, most of the sources I read stated that Twain was a skeptic when it came to anything paranormal. He was very much a pragmatic guy. I think I learned that, too. Um, however, I did come across this great incident that I want to tell you about that pretty much illustrates Mark Twain's approach to anything paranormal. Okay. So, one night, when he's living at number 14, he sees a piece of firewood kindling start moving across the room by itself. Oh, shit. Yeah. Twain insists that it has to be a rodent carrying the wood. So what does he do? The most Mark Twain thing ever. He pulls out a gun, and he shoots the kindling. Nice. It clatters to the floor, and he walks over to examine it. And he picks it up, and he doesn't see a rodent or a dead body. He just finds a few drops of blood. What the hell? Right? I don't know if ghosts actually bleed or what. Yeah. I've never heard of anything like that. I just thought that was kind of amazing that Mark Twain's like, it's not a ghost, it's a rat. Bang! (laughs) So Twain eventually ends up moving out out of the brownstone in 1901, and he ends up dying less than 10 years later in Redding, Connecticut. Now, while he didn't die in the house of death, a few of the residents have reported seeing a ghost that resembles Twain wandering around the house. Uh, One resident even reported in the 1930s that she saw Twain's apparition appear before a window in her apartment. And he said to her, my name's Clemens, and I got a problem here to settle. And then he disappeared. So I'm like, what's the problem? Is it the kindling? What's going on, Mark? Yeah. What's going on? There's that ghost I shot however many years ago. Should have shot that darn ghost. tracking it down. (laughs) So it was also in the 1930s when the brownstone went from being this big single family home with servants' quarters and, you know, just a luxury house to apartments. Uh, With more people living in the house of death, naturally, there were more reports of paranormal activity and they slowly began to increase over time. The activity really came to a head, however, when a woman named Jan Bryant Bartell and her husband Fred move into the top floor unit in 1957. Now, initially, the Bartells didn't want to take the apartment because it was the old servants' quarters and okay. it was, you know, like a walk up all the way to the top of this building. See, that's the one thing that makes me mad about living in New York is those beautiful brownstones mm-hmm. are either being torn down completely, which really sucks. Or they're just, like, a bunch of, like, smaller apartments now rather than being, like, the amazing freaking house that they used to be. Yeah, and it all depends on who did the, the renovations to make yep. them into apartments, whether it's, like, a nice living situation or a not-so-nice living situation. Or it's like, situation. now you're living in a shithole. Congratulations. We crammed 50 apartments into this one building. By the way, your bathroom's in the hallway. You share it with your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> like, ugh. Nope. Never doing that living situation. Big nope. I remember when I was going to go to Costa Rica... And I was like, I don't want to stay in the capital, even though that's the only way in or out. Um, so I want to go to this one island because mm-hmm. it looks beautiful. And I was like, oh, accommodations in this place are really cheap. It's like 20 bucks a night. That's awesome. That's a steal. And then I learned that you need to share a bathroom with everyone else that was staying there. That's cool. It's not your thing. I get it. Yeah, not going to do it. That's fine. That's why I'm glad I didn't live in the dorms in college either. <laughs> So the Bartels, again, are kind of weird about taking this apartment, um, but due to the housing crisis that was happening in New York at the time, they were basically forced to accept this apartment despite their misgivings. Yeah. Uh, They probably should have listened to their guts on this one, though. Um, As soon as they moved in, Jan started to feel chills around the apartment and started to feel very claustrophobic when she was by herself in the apartment. That's just New York. It's fine. (laughs) You'd think. (laughs) Uh, she said she started to hear footsteps following her up the stairs when she would come from the street into the into the building up to her apartment. It's just a stalker. It's fine. <laughs> she experienced the feeling of something being brushed against the back of her neck by some unseen force. Uh, nope. Nope. And then to top it all off, she started seeing a, quote, monstrous moving shadow, end quote, 
out of the corner of her eye when she would be in the apartment by herself. Okay, that's that's probably legit because I've had experiences like that too. Yeah, and this is all within a couple months of moving in. So she's like, I didn't want to move here, Fred. And now this crazy nonsense is happening. Damn it, Fred. Dang it, Fred. So while most of the paranormal <laughs> happenings are focused on Jan... Both she and Fred reported smelling this awful rotting odor around the they, apartment. They weren't focused on Marsha? No, not Marsha. Not Just Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, Jan for a change. Okay. Jan for a change. So they both start smelling this awful rotting smell around the apartment. And this nasty stench of decay would disappear randomly. Just as randomly as it would appear. So just kind of be like, you walk into the apartment, you just smell this nasty funk, and you're like, what is that? It smells like death in here. But like, honey, come here, can you smell this? It's just my axe deodorant. <laughs> but this is the 50s. <laughs> it's just my old spice. It's my pre-axe deodorant. It's my old, it's my aqua velva. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that both of the Bartels reported was that they'd find rotting food that would suddenly appear in like their kitchen. Like after like, Janet clean up for the evening, it would just be all of a sudden this hunk of rotting food sitting on their counter. Or they're just lying slobs, you don't know. But here's the weird part, right? So it would be a food item that either the Bartels didn't purchase at all, oh, or they hadn't had in months. So that, like one incident I remember reading about is like a bunch of nasty, like desiccated grapes appeared in the kitchen one time. Ugh. And it was like the middle of winter, and Jan had not purchased grapes for months. That's really strange. Yeah. It's... Kind of weird because it seems like maybe the ghosts are eating the food, but then it's like, ghosts don't eat food, ghosts don't bleed, what is going on in this damn house? The house of death. Including food. No. (laughs) (laughs) Food death. The house of food death. Oh, and then, like, so, uh, Jan and Fred didn't have kids, but they did have two beloved pet dogs. And the dogs would freak out every once in a while, and they would snarl at the shadows in the corner of the apartment, and they'd growl at empty pieces of furniture, like there was some kind of mysterious threat or presence in the furniture. Oh, great. And I think we discussed before that animals are normally more sensitive than humans are to things. Yep. So they stay there for about seven years. And as the years pass, the activity continues to escalate. The point where the Bartels would go out for the evening and they would come home and the furniture in their living room would be mysteriously moved or the entire room would be rearranged. So the feng shui ghost. Yes, the feng shui angry ghost. Gotcha. The Ottoman ghost here. <laughs> no, it's just the guys from Queer Eye. <laughs> Girl, we got you. <laughs> and then creepily enough, Jan would like be by herself in the daytime because she didn't. She was an actress and, a, and like a off off. Off Broadway actress, severely off Broadway. Severely with the way off you Broadway. Put that. Yes, and uh, a part-time poet. So she'd be around the house while Fred was at work, hanging out with the dogs. So she's everybody in New York City, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. And she would just hear the sound of breaking glass, and she'd run into the room that she heard the sound, in and nothing would be broken. And then she heard the sound of breaking glass from the other side of the apartment. And she'd run to that side, nothing would be broken. And then next, she would hear Annie Lennox. <laughs> walking on, walking on, broken glass. Oh, so good. But unfortunately, no. So one day, Jan's at home by herself. She's walking around the apartment doing her Jan thing. Thinking about Marsha, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and she sees a figure of a man appear just right in front of her. And she reaches out with a finger to touch the figure. And later wrote about the experience and said, quote, what is it I touched? A substance without substance. Chilly, damp, diaphanous as marsh mist, or a cloud of ether. I could feel my fingertips freeze. They were numb, and yet they tingled. In a split second between contact and recoil, the scent came. Fragile and laggerous and sweet. Unbearably, coilingly sweet, end quote. Clearly, so, you can tell that. She's definitely a poet, okay. Definitely a poet, a little bit, little bit dramatic, maybe. That was her, her next performance. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not saying anything. So this super freaked out the Bartels. They were very shaken by yeah. the appearances apparition, as I think anybody would be. And they contacted a paranormal expert by the name of Hans Holzer. Have you heard of Hans Holzer? Sorry, I'm I didn't dying. realize you were so offended by Hans Holzer. <laughs> I choked on this damn wine that you brought me. Um, okay. All I know of is Hans and Franz. So, no, I don't know who this Hans person is. So, apparently Hans Holzer was a pretty famous parapsychologist in the 60s and 70s. 
Uh, he was most famous probably for investigating the Amityville Horror House around the same time that the Warrens did. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, and he... I didn't come across... Well, oh, that's... He... Spoiler didn't... alert, I'm doing Amityville next episode. <laughs> <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. <gasps> yeah. Um, well, he did it, like, actually right before the Warrens, and he was kind of suspicious of the Lutz. Like, he was kind of like, okay, yeah, something's going to happen. that's probably why I didn't find it in my yeah. notes. And then the Warrens came in, like, within weeks after... Hans was there. Um, but he has written, like, tons and tons of books. Like, if you go to Wikipedia and look him up, you will see his entire bibliography. And it's legit. Like, he wrote a, about um, paranormal activity and his, like, studies. Because he actually was a PhD in, in, in science, especially in uh, metaphysics and also psychology. Okay. Um, I wrote, like this guy already. Yeah, he, it's really cool. He has, like, an Had entire... a lot of my background. <laughs> he has, like, like, 40 books. Like, he wrote from, like, the 60s to, like, till he passed away in the early 2000s. Like, very prolific writer. Hans Holzer comes in. And since he's a scientist and not a psychic, what does he do? He brings in a medium to help him investigate the Bartels apartment. So, as soon as they enter the apartment, the medium immediately detects the presence of ghosts. And the medium says that the ghosts are buried or trapped within the floorboards uh, or under the floorboards of the apartment. My worst nightmare. Mm Mm-hmm. What's that? A creaky board? It's a ghost, girl! <laughs> but the medium says that there's three distinct entities. One is a young, curly-haired girl, an aborted child, which I'm like, what? Aborted child? Mm-hmm. And a gray cat. All right. So. I'm down with the cat. That's I know. Cat fine. ghosts, you know. As the medium tries to psychically shoo the cat ghost away, which, like, I don't know why that would be your first pick. I mean, that sounds freaking delightful. That sounds like the one that's probably the least harmful. Yeah. The medium slips into a trance. Get the toy. Get the toy. You want the mouse? You want the (laughs) mousey? Then be gone. Don't bite off its tail so we have to pull it out your butt later. Oh. Oh, worst experience as a pet owner ever. That's rough, huh? They're such fluffy little murderers, though. (laughs) Anyway, so as she's, as this, as the medium was trying to shoo the ghost cat away. The medium slips into a trance and is possessed by the ghost uh, who identifies herself as a young Civil War widow who once lived in the house. And this ghost also claims to be the mother of the aborted child. Wait, are you sure this isn't more recent? She identifies as that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, I can't speak for the spectral queer community, but... That's true. I'm going to say this is what the medium experienced, supposedly. Gotcha. So Hans Holzer attempts to drive the ghosts away at this point by telling them that the Bartels are the rightful inhabitants. They need to move on, you know, yada, 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 all the stuff you, you know, try to negotiate with a ghost. Uh, The ghost, through the possessed medium, absolutely refuses to leave, claims this is their house, and they want the Bartels out. After this incident, the strange experiences continue, and they keep escalating, and the Bartels finally have had enough, and they move out. Then a couple years later... In 1973, Jan documents her experiences of living in the House of Death in a book. And she states that she feels like the energy, that negative ghostly energy from number 14 West 10th Street has followed her to her new house in New Rochelle, New York. Ah, shit. Yeah. That's not what you want to hear. Nope. And honestly, she may have been onto something because she suddenly dies of a heart attack. Oh, my God. Yeah. Only a few months before her book is released. Oh, Mm, that would make me really, really mad. It's like, I've worked this hard on all this <laughs> shit, and now I'm not even going to see it through. Right. Great. Thanks. Thanks, universe. But I guess the book was a, was a, a modest su- success. It was called Spindrift, Spray from the Psychic Sea, which I don't know about that title. I don't, it's a little... I don't like that title. It mm-hmm. sounds vaguely dirty and gross. It sounds very, you know, on brand for Jan, though. Okay, yeah. On brand for Jan. On brand for Jan. <laughs> Uh, I actually looked on Amazon, and you can still find this book if you want to read more um, about the Bartels' experience in the House of Death. But fair warning, it's kind of overpriced. And then, out of curiosity, I had to look at some of the reviews, and I logged on to Goodreads. And all of the reviews pretty much say one of two things. I love this book. It was great. Or the prose is so over the top. <laughs> and like I mentioned, Jam was like an off-Broadway off actress and poet. So and the, what she said earlier was very much like... It was just very, very, very. Very, uh, that's very. All I got. Yeah. Yes. And the book apparently is very, very, has lots of crazy purple pose, prose. Uh, one of the best lines Did that you someone. Say purple? Purple prose. Purple prose. It's like, a, it means like overly flowery, oh, okay. like unnecessarily poetic gotcha. writing. Okay. 
So one of the reviewers actually had some really good <laughs> quotes. One of them was, quote, I was face to face with the unseen. <laughs> <laughs> And then another reviewer said that while he enjoyed the book, he felt that it was a little intense at times because it had over 646 exclamation points and the book is only 245 pages long. So that's like at least like two, two to five exclamation points. That's a lot of, yeah. I don't do the maths, but that sounds like a a lot. So Dan was very enthusiastic. I noticed that when I'm texting and stuff, (laughs) I use exclamation points a lot. So I just sound like I'm shouting at people all the time. I feel like it. Really? I want to just tell them that I'm excited about something and I think (laughs) I just go too far. (laughs) I feel like if, if Jan was still alive in this day and age, she would be all about the emoticons. Probably. Oh, God, like the text that you showed me when, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a semen thing from yeah. episode one. That eggplant. It's eggplant emoji. Rainbow, yeah. So this kind of leads me to another great thing I found it, about the House of Death. It was actually from a New York Post article that I read that I used as a source for this story because it had some really, really wonderful interviews with current residents. Wait, this and this New York Post. New York said. Post, yeah. Okay, good. Then I don't have to stop listening because I'm boycotting the New York Times <laughs> after mine. No, it was New York Post. And this article was written in, I want, I forget, I think it was sometime in like the early, like 2012-ish time okay. period. So they were interviewing current residents of the House of Death. And one of the longtime residents of the building, he had lived there for 20 years, had said that he had actually read Spindrift and he believes Bartell's account of the paranormal activity in the building He's personally experienced several apparitions. Mostly what he has seen in the building have been women in long gowns, like snippets of them, like out the corner of his eye, in the hallways. He even saw a woman once walk through the hallway in a very, like, ornate Victorian gown and a small gray cat was following behind her. The cat! The cat! Right? I'm sorry, that's all I'm getting excited for is the cat. Very happy that the Rainbow Bridge (laughs) is a thing and sometimes not all kitties make it. They become ghost kitties because they love their house so much. Absolutely. Oh, the other weird thing that this guy mentioned is that he's actually owned over 10 copies of Spindrift while he's lived at the House of Death, and that the copies kind of, they just keep mysteriously disappearing off his bookshelf. She's like, let me read my beautiful prose again. Well, no one's seen Jan there. Oh. Or the house is like, I can't believe this prose. (laughs) (laughs) Imagining it to be like the curtains, the sweet dream fabric of life. Uh, One other review. Purple hue. Touch my skin, like, you know, something just, like, crazy. Yeah, and she's like, I don't, one of the viewers was like, she's kind of an interesting character, because she's like, I don't drink much. It was a Thursday after, and I had a, a, just a smidge of amaretto. I'm like, what? And by the way, It was just, the 50s, though, so I'm like, I get it, I get it. Yeah, with just writing that little bit of weirdness, I just looked around the room and just saw things, and that's what I decided to say, because <laughs> I'm just like, whatever, we can make this sound over the top. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, you needed wine for that, too. I did. I understand. Well, I'm about to get to the really dark part of uh, the House of Death, which I... do tell. This is the thing that kind of triggered me to want to write about it, because you have all this weird ghostly activity, and then you have a little bit of actual true crime. Okay. So, the House of Death was again in the spotlight in the 1980s, and you may have heard of this. Um, It was due to its most infamous resident, a man named Joel Steinberg. I know that name. Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of had a feeling you might. So in 1987, Steinberg, who was a criminal defense attorney and head of Nussbaum, an editor and yeah, children's book too. author, you know, lived at an apartment at number 14 West 10th Street with their two adopted children, six-year-old Lisa and 18-month-old Mitchell. Uh, over the years, the neighbors in the building had rarely interacted with either of them, but they did occasionally hear fighting come from their apartment and some had reported seeing Nussbaum wearing dark, large, dark glasses in the hallways. In the early morning hours of November 2nd, 1987, 911 received a call about a child not breathing at the Steinberg Nussbaum residence. What the police and EMS discovered at the apartment at number 14 would go on to shock the city of New York. In a dirty, squalid apartment, they found Nussbaum with a swollen and bruised face and split lip, 18-month-old Mitchell tied to his playpen by his waist with a rope around his waist soaked in a dirty urine-stained diaper. And on the bathroom floor, they found six-year-old Lisa, covered in bruises and unresponsive. She was covered in dirt, her long hair was matted, and the soles of her feet were blackened with grime. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. I'm christening right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Steinberg told the police and EMS that Lisa had fallen and passed out the previous evening and that he had attempted to revive her with CPR when he checked on her in the morning and found that she wasn't breathing. Lisa was rushed to the hospital, where she died three days later. The medical examiner concluded that Lisa died of blunt force trauma to the head and that the injury had occurred many hours prior to her death. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Both Nussbaum and Mitchell were also examined by hospital staff and they showed signs of long-term physical abuse. Great. Yep. Lovely. So Joel Steinberg was quickly arrested in connection with Lisa's death and indicted for second-degree murder, first-degree manslaughter, and endangering the welfare of a child. Yeah, he's a real fucking monster. He's the winner. Yeah. He's a real monster. Sorry, I need wine. I just, this is a very tough thing to it's write about. Okay. And it's weirdly enough, my brain just went to, I want Texas toast. Don't know why. Is that your comfort food? I think so. Fair enough. I mean, I get it. It's curvy, it's garlicky, it's delicious. The kind that I have in the fridge or freezer right now has cheese on it. So, and cheese is definitely my comfort food. Well, damn, I know what your next word snack's going to be. That, yeah. (laughs) I think between this episode and next episode, when we record, I'm going to have some Texas toast. All right. Before before you can have your Texas toast, we have to finish this journey. Absolutely. I am more than ready. (sighs) Hit me with it. So, the police investigation brings to light this hellish existence in the Steinberg Nussbaum household and it fueled this media frenzy. At trial, witnesses detailed Steinberg's abuse of cocaine and his controlling cinematic... It was the 80s who wasn't doing cocaine. It was the 80s, but he was like a criminal defense attorney and guess who he represented? Who? Drug dealers! Oh, okay. That's nice. They probably paid him in drugs. He was. Uh, witnesses also talked a lot about how he appeared to have a very controlling sadomasochistic relationship with Nussbaum. Like to the point where like she was a pretty, before they had met, she was a pretty successful editor and children's author at Random House Publishing. Oh shit. And over the course of her relationship, the, the physical abuse took such a toll on her appearance and her attitude that she ended up getting fired from Random House and pretty much spent all of her time in the apartment. Like, people said that, that, like... definitely wasn't good for her. Yeah. People said that, like, when they saw her after this all came to light, she was about 40, 45, 46 years old. She looked like a woman twice that age. Like, she was, like, her face was deformed. Like, she was hunched back from, like, malnutrition and vitamin deficiency. She was anemic. It was just... She was a mess. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then she had these two little kids in this apartment with her. So, the fucked up thing is that their neighbors at number 14 West 10th Street had actually contacted Child Protective Services multiple times throughout the years. Um, But nothing was ever really done by anybody at those agencies who was responsible. Like, basically, they would come in and be like, there's something going on. And Steinberg would just kind of smooth talk them out of, like, not investigating or, like, bully Nussbaum into saying the children are fine or, you know, just trying to, like, do anything it could to keep these people out of his house. So this all comes out of trial. Then... The most devastating testimony comes from Hedda Nussbaum herself. And again, like, so her face is, like, terribly disfigured, and she was on the witness stand. And this is one of the first trials, one of one of the first few trials that were nationally televised yeah. in New York City. So people everywhere saw this. Um, initially, she had been charged in Lisa's death, too. But prosecutors ended up dropping the charges and adding her to the witness list. Because she just looked so freaking... Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, and they added her to the witness list. Actually, they had medical evidence that suggested that because, like, the day Lisa died, like, when she went to the hospital and was examined, they realized Nussbaum, one, had multiple broken ribs, she was suffering from anemia and some chronic infections, and she was malnourished. It was basically almost physically impossible for her to have the strength to actually cause Lisa's fatal injuries. Wow. Yeah, totally crazy. So, Nussbaum's ordeal basically put the phrase quote battered women's syndrome or battered woman's Better, syndrome yeah like that became part of the american vernacular when she took the stand as our you testifying. know what maybe i knew about this because of psychology it's very college. likely it was the first time that defense was used as like she she couldn't help herself she couldn't break away from this person her yeah. partner so when nussbaum testifies she says that on november 1st which is the evening before that Lisa had gone into their bedroom while Steinberg was getting ready to go out for dinner with friends and asked them to take her with him. The next thing that Nesbaum remembers is that Steinberg hit Lisa in the head, which caused her to pass out. He then left the apartment to go have dinner with his friends. Uh, before he left, he did tell Nesbaum to watch Lisa and that he would, quote, wake her up when he got home. 
Great. Okay. Yeah. So Nussbaum is alone with Lisa, who's unconscious, in the bathroom floor for roughly 10 hours. In the bathroom floor? On the bathroom floor. Sorry. <laughs> she is unconscious on the bathroom floor. Well, they did say there were floorboard ghosts or yeah, whatever. Fair enough. Fair enough. So she has, she has this little girl unconscious in the bathroom for like almost 10 hours. Initially, she does try to like wake Lisa up. It doesn't work. And Nussbaum gives up and spends the evening organizing Steinberg's business files. Totally awful. Yes. But the super insane part of this to me, again, going back to the battered women syndrome, is that Nussbaum was so enthralled by Steinberg's psychological manipulation that she actually believed he had supernatural powers and that he could heal Lisa when he got back. Oh, shit. Yeah. So that's why she didn't do anything. She just like, oh, well, she's fine. Joel's going to get back and take care of it. That's literally what she thought because she was still heavily gaslit. He was Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn? The um the guy from uh, like the like chill evangelist and the by the power of Jesus you are healed type of guy like maybe hits them know. on the head and they just fall down and I'm clearly like hitting people on the head I'll, I mean I'll show you videos okay fair enough so Steinberg eventually gets home he attempts to revive Lisa he fails then he's like oh well good thing I got this cocaine to freebase <laughs> that's great yep. So he spends the rest of the evening freebasing cocaine with Nussbaum. I had to explain what freebasing was to my dad the one time. How'd that go? That was interesting. I was like, no, I don't know from experience. I swear. Like, (laughs) (gasps) I've read about these kind of things. Yeah, right. So they spend the night freebasing because that's what one does, apparently, in the 80s. Absolutely. It's New York in the 80s. I guess. Around 6 a.m., Nussbaum checks on Lisa and she discovers she isn't breathing. Steinberg performs CPR, and then he gives in to Nussbaum's urge to call for help. Sadly, the call came far, far too late. Um, And the really tragic part is that according to medical experts who testified at Steinberg's trial, Lisa would have survived her head injury if she'd actually received medical attention at any point on the night of November 1st. So if, like, if Hedda Nussbaum had just called somebody when Joel left, she would have survived. Well, shit. Yep. Super sad and depressing. Now I really need the Texas toast. (laughs) Eventually, um, on January 30th, 1989, Joel Steinberg was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to the maximum punishment under the law, which was eight and a third to 25 years in prison. He ended up serving 16 years in state prison and was released on parole in 2004. Uh, after Lisa Steinberg's death, um, the, I, the plight of child abuse in New York City became a front and very topical thing. Yeah. And it actually did trigger a lot of reform and a lot of awareness. Um, also, at the House of Death, reports of paranormal, paranormal activity actually decreased. There haven't been any significant reports of activity in the old Steinberg apartment either. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so before I wrap up, on that super dark note, I did want to mention that number 14 isn't the only house on that block that's haunted. Okay. Apparently, number 18, West 10th Street, is reportedly haunted by Emma Lazarus, who I didn't know who that was. So First of all, that name. I know. Like, surprise, she's yeah. back from the dead. It's Emma. <laughs> yep. Emma Laz, come at you. Um, she was actually the poet who wrote the New Colossus poem, a.k.a. the poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Like the, give me your tired, your poor, right, your huddled right. masses, yeah. yearning to breathe three. Um, yeah, the woman who wrote that lived at number 18 on the same street and supposedly haunts that building. So that's that's nice. the story of the House of Death, man. That uh, last bit made me think of my childhood home and how every house on that street had experienced some sort of paranormal activity. Really? Yep. So we're wondering, what the hell was our ha- were our houses built over? Yeah, seriously. What was here before? It makes you question it, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be something, like, I kind of think, like, you know, West 10th Street. I mean, also, like, it has a connection to other famous authors, like Edgar Allan Poe would hang out yeah. there because there was a woman that he was trying to court at number 17. Lenore. It wasn't Lenore. It was after Lenore died. Ah, okay. Um... Also, Dashiell Hammond and uh, Lillian Hellman lived on that street for a period of time. So I think it's just one of those places where so many people have lived their lives and experienced, like, the highs and lows of just being a person, including, you know, birth and death, that it just has that, like, energy that's left behind. So it could be something similar in your your neighborhood. I'm sure it was probably an older section of town, so... 
but yeah, I, I uh, thought it was a pretty cool story. I found a lot of good info, like I said, on the New York Post article. Um, there was an amazing article about the whole Steinberg case on uh, the crime library on TrueTV.com. And then the Chicago Tribune also had some pretty cool information about Mark Twain. A lot good. of info about his later years. But yeah, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That is amazing. I really enjoyed that. Good, I'm glad. Throwing in a dash of true crime, because I'm going to throw in a dash of true crime with my uh, paranormal story as well. So Let's say hats off to that. Yes. Well, that is all we have for you today, folks. But if you need more, you can always contact us to get, you know, your daily fix of us. Because we're just really awesome. I, I just want to admit that we're really, really awesome, aren't we? Eden posts pretty funny memes. I'm just going to say, <laughs> if you want a chuckle, please follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Roadside Horror Show, because I think you'll enjoy some of the, the wackiness that he posts. You can also email us, and I hope you do, because I'd love to hear from you guys. We both would. At uh, roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. I almost forgot what our email was. Mm-hmm. If you liked our podcast, uh, please rate and review us on your yes. favorite podcatcher. It really does help out, and we appreciate everybody who takes the time out of their day to give us a review. More people can find us if you tell them hey i like your podcast so please do that we thank you very much for it also on twitter we can finally get it right now oh that's right what is it again you have to remind me (laughs) it's at roadside horror that's right roadside horror twitter and their limited usernames stupid twitter Mm -mm -mm. the tweets so twitter if you're listening we have a bone to pick with you As always, we would like to thank Yak Fox Design and E. Massey for our wonderful logo and the music, respectively. Absolutely. And we will see you guys at our next stop. Yes, we will see you next week. Bye.